It's great to be here uh, before I head out in just a few weeks. And I'm impressed. I was just finding out all y'all do during the summer. It's like we, we, we tend to take Jesus off in the summer. I have no idea why we do that. In the, in the, so, because um, he's always with us. So, um, yeah, just to start out, give you some background, more context with my, how I was growing up. I was uh, not Catholic, obviously, so I'm going to talk about my conversion to Catholicism, but just give you some background about, you know, before that. Uh, grew up in a, a home where my mother was a, a person of, of real faith. Um, interestingly enough, her name is Mary, right? There you go. There's some seed right there early on. Um, and very, very faithful. Dad, <laughs> I think when I was young he was, but, but went off the rails. He was a good guy after that. I didn't, I didn't see that, at least in my life. And I think for me, it was just, I was a very nominal uh, believer. Christian, you know, might have said I was. I don't know what I would have said. My parents' faith was my faith on some level. Be dragged to church, you know, by my mom and my dad, mainly because she promised food, you know, at the end of this. So, you know, there's a buffet at the end of this, put the suit on, go to church. So, and I think also had some difficulties in my life. This is a whole, I could do the first part as a whole testimony in and of itself. And, you know, I blame God for those. I think that's one of the greatest problems that we have. Uh, when it comes, it's really the key thing, you know, our our faith is, it makes sense in so many ways, but the problem of evil and suffering. So I encountered that in a, a special way in my life and went through some real difficult times. I blame God for that, even though I didn't know who he was. So anyway, C.S. Lewis's uh, famous uh, quote a lot of people like to uh, go to, and I think it's in The Problem of Pain, where he says, uh, God is pain. Pain, or, uh, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. That kind of sums up the first conversion in my life. I just got to a point where I was like, I need to take a look at my faith. I'd always been somewhat of a thinker, but um, interestingly enough, I didn't really reflect on the best things. <laughs> but I like to think about things, politics and whatnot. So uh, started getting a hold of apologetics uh, and uh, started to attend... Uh, a church near here, many of you are probably familiar with North Point Community Church, and it's I think in in the Buckhead version uh, was years later, but I went to the one in Alpharetta, and and just fell in love with just what I thought never really existed. I didn't really think I had a reason to to believe these things about the Lord and what He did for us. Um, I didn't see it as a relationship with God. It was just religion to me. So, you know, the, the basic story here, a lot of times it became a relationship, uh, my faith, and then I felt called to learn more. So I went to seminary. Went to an evangelical uh, seminary, um, and it's local. It's actually, up, uh, it was housed originally when I started going um, at Church of the Apostles. Anyone know where that is? Right down the road, you drive up 75, see that big church kind of looking out over 75 north. And so that's where we had our seminary first. And this was like, just to give you an idea of the theology, it was like going all the way back to the form of the Reformation. You know, so it was, it's actually called, it's called Reformed Theological Seminary. 
So it's kind of like we go back to Calvin and Luther, and that's as far as we go. And, you know, in their minds, I think that everything started there. You know, they were going back to the early church. That was the mindset. But I, I had no Catholic family members that really were committed to, to Catholicism. I think I had some nominal Catholics in my uh, name only, you know, in my relatives. Um, but they never talked about their faith. Um, and we were mostly, I think, Presbyterian was our denomination throughout the, the family. Extended family as well as a nuclear family. Had a sister that was older. And uh, many of you know her. Talk a lot about her. Uh, so I'm in seminary. And uh, I loved the church I was attending. Um, I was at Perimeter Church. Has anyone ever heard of that? Up in Duluth. So uh, another kind of mega church. And I liked everything about it. I liked what they did. And I felt like I had a relationship with God and loved Him. Uh, but I wasn't hooked into a particular Christian group or denomination. I never felt like... My mom is funny. She's, um, she's not Catholic. She's a great Christian woman, but she's Presbyterian. And she grew up in the same Presbyterian denomination that she's in today. You know, now there's a ton of them now out there. Well, she's in a particular one. And she really sees things through that lens. But while I was raised in that, I just, I didn't ever feel like a connection with a church. Uh, and even when I had a conversion, you know, I was in North Point and then I went to Perimeter. And it was really some of the things Perimeter would do that I really uh, appreciated. Uh, that I felt, you know, uh, I felt I liked about that church. But I, it, was a, it was really just a local group of people that I found myself in. And so during the time I'm in seminary, uh, my sister, who her, her name is Amanda Haley. Some of you may know her, and she does a lot of things around here. Um, and she um, had been the one that had invited me to North Point uh, originally and kind of led me into that church. She grew up in the same kind of Presbyterian denomination with my family. Kind of had the same kind of nominal Christian faith. Would have said she's a Christian, but that didn't really impact her life, the way she lived. So she had a conversion kind of before me, and then she invited me, um, interestingly enough, with food to get me to go back to church. So she knew I was seeking a little bit. So she, she um, said, hey, there's a buffet at the end of this. Why don't you just come to this new church we're going to? So I went there. And so I kind of looked to her in some ways. And uh, I'm in the seminary. And all of a sudden, my sister goes to a silent retreat. She went to the Ignatius house, so down the road, and had a profound experience, got to know a priest. Uh, some of you know the priest. He is the pastor, uh, in, I think it's St. Joseph's in Athens. Speaking of St. Joseph's, I think we have a million St. Joseph's. Um, Father Paul Moreau, maybe some of you know, he used to be a legionnaire, but when the legionnaires had their kind of their breakup, he discerned out of there and was incarnated as a diocesan priest in Atlanta. Uh, so she got, she met him and she met some of the Regnum Christi people there that were lay people uh, at the retreat. And then she also just had this deep experience of contemplation when she had a three-day silent retreat. And she started asking deeper questions and got to know some of the, the people that had gone to this retreat, devout Catholics. And they gave her, this, is, this was the, the big, 
I think, bait for her. They gave her some Scott Hahn tapes. That's what that, we, we've all heard that. Hadn't you? Some, someone gave them Scott Hahn. So um, she started reading um, Rome, Sweet Rome. But she did. She's a real. She's a thinker like I am. So she just got a hold of a bunch of stuff, just like that. Catholic answers. It was just just eating it up and just going through it. Um, and she'd always admired Pope John Paul II, and you know didn't have really anything against the Catholic Church. Neither did I. Um, and so she would come to me, and, and I did not like this, by the way, at all, because I was in seminary at a, a seminary that I had to say, you know, they had a lot in common with the church fathers, and there was a lot of openness to a lot of the ideas that you would see in Catholicism because they, they got it. They got a lot of their, at least the formation of their ideas from the church. That's all there was before you had the Reformation, you know, and the, uh, the break off. And, um, you know, I knew how to, I thought I knew how to answer some of the challenges uh, that she was presenting me. Um, and I didn't like it because I, I felt like I was in seminary now, so I was supposed to be the family theologian. You know, and uh, my sister had always been older than me, and so now I'm thinking, what do I have to deal with this now? I've got to argue about this stuff? You know, what is this? You know, and so she would make a point about something, and I knew how to respond to it because I knew the kind of superficial response that you hear, uh, you know, about different things that she would encounter theologically, about the Eucharist, the sacraments, some of the big differences, the Blessed Mother, uh, justification by faith alone, and I knew, I knew the responses, I thought I knew them, and then she would give me her responses. And she did it in a way that was kind of the big sister, no, you're wrong, approach, you know, so I, I didn't like it, and so, but I would, I thought I responded well, but something made me want to seek deeper each time she would present something to me. So without even realizing, and I think I just started thinking through almost every aspect of my seminary experience um, at Reformed Theological Seminary. And there were a number of things that happened in the seminary that I feel like uh, kind of led me down the path of St. John Newman. Do you know his famous quote? Does anyone know the quote I'm thinking about? He love, people love to quote this particular. Uh, one who studies church history ceases to be Protestant. Yes, yeah, so, so I think it's one who, to be deep in history, is to cease to be Protestant. I think he just says history in general. So he was an Anglican that converted to you know, the Catholic Church and great saint. Um, and so he wrestled with all this stuff. And... I felt like the more I went back, the more I saw that what I saw was uh, uh, Catholicism in a kind of what I would call embryonic form. You know, you think of the fact that in essence, everything we have has never changed essentially, but there's been development. So for example, Mary was always a matriarchal figure. You go way back, she was always seen as all holy. You know, uh, St. Augustine would have said, I will not talk of, of sin when I, when I speak of the Blessed Mother. But the, there wasn't a dogma of the Immaculate Conception until years later. But there was no change. There was this, this seed form, uh, you know, more embryonic form, and then you have the development. So the seed in the tree. And that's what I saw. I, I didn't see, uh, unfortunate, I say unfortunately because I was looking for it, um, my experience in the Protestant world and my theological perspective. I didn't see that. 
Um, and as I went deeper and deeper, um, I felt like the experience was I lived that quote from John Newman. But I would also say, I used to always say it like this, that I, I feel like I stepped into the fullness of the incarnation. That maybe I had a, I would say I had a relationship with the Lord, but now I was really coming more fully into union with his church. You know, for the first time, uh, when I started asking all these questions, and um, it was uh, one thing after another. <clears throat> you know, I just, I realized, for example, that, you know, if you go back to the early Christians up into the fathers, there was no debate over whether uh, baptism uh, was a, uh, you know, an efficacious sign of where grace was given, an actual cause of grace, where people were cleansed of original sin and, and born again. This idea of baptism being symbolic not only was that not a debate, there, there's, you know, the only, the, only, the only thing you can come to that on or people could argue that that was the case, it was only symbolic, was you had to take church fathers out of context. But if you really listen to them and you listen to the theologians, you read the early catechisms, you read the Didache, they never believed that. They, they always believed that you're born again through baptism. You're cleansed of original sin. You become a new creation. And when I read St. Paul in the scriptures, same thing. He never says, oh, by the way, this is as simple. No, he says, you were, buried, you were buried in Christ through baptism into death in order that you might rise and share his resurrection. That's what we believe. We're united into his death and resurrection first in baptism. St. People, uh, St. Peter. St. Peter speaks about baptism that way. St. Paul does again in, in Galatians. And they never say, oh, by the way, this is a symbol. You know, it wasn't qualified until the Reformation. So that really bothered me. I remember even asking a um, particular theologian, uh, you know, because sacraments are, are where there's a real divorce between, you know, Protestantism and Catholicism. Because they're all over the place with the sacraments. Some of them call them ordinances. Some of them only have two. Some of them have a few more. They often are very subjective. Well, we think it means this. We think it means this. So, um, but I remember uh, asking, one of our professors, um, and I remember his name, John Fesco. I think he's the president of Westminster Seminary in California. He was at least when I graduated from uh, Reformed Theological Seminary. And he said, um, you know, I asked him, I said, well, where were the church fathers on baptism? Where did they, you know, what did they believe about, you know, baptism being more than just symbolic? He's like, well, you know, the Catholic position, and they, they call it baptismal regeneration. That's what you'll hear in the Protestant world. You see, like, they were, they were pretty much right there. <laughs> I'm thinking, well, how did they get there? Because they were only 300 years out. I mean, that's 1,200 years before the Reformation. Don't you think that's a pretty big step in the wrong direction if baptism is only a symbol? And remember, universally, with the exception of the Methodist, I think Anglicans as well, uh, but most all evangelicals, Baptists, and huge hundreds of millions of, of, of Protestant Christians, they could never believe it's anything more than a symbol. And that's a huge thing when that was not even debated for 1,500 years. Uh, another thing was the Eucharist, obviously the, one of the big ones. I mean, there's five different views of the Eucharist. Well, how, how can we possibly know the central aspect of the Catholic faith, I mean, and the faith up until the Reformation, they can't agree on that. So these things, again, I, I still like my church. I still 
had I was befuddled by a number of things still in, in the Catholic world, but those questions kept piling up. Another thing that, that happened was um, I remember I had to do a, um, a biography paper, and, and this was a paper on um, a guy named uh, Jonathan Livingston. So he's a he was a great like Protestant missionary. You know these guys that would go into uncharted territory, you know, to share the gospel. And he went into uh, sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and he he actually did a lot of good things and brought the message of Christianity there. But one of the things that, that kind of I struggled with is his family really paid for it. So he felt that he need, he was supposed to be married. He just, he you know, felt called to be married. And, and so he got married. Well, his wife didn't have the same faith that he did. And in those days, this was back, I think, 17, 1800s when he did this, um, you know, there were, it was much more dangerous to travel and go to these areas. And so um, he leaves his family for a long time, then comes back, and there's a lot of problems with his family that had poverty and other issues they had to deal with because he hadn't been there. Then he takes his wife back with him. The kids end up staying with relatives, but then they end up having an accident and just a lot of difficulties in their lives. And the wife gets sick. I believe she dies in Africa. Um, and I remember at the conclusion of the paper, you know, I could kind of concluded, well, he did a lot of great things, but you know, I think he may have should have been celibate. <laughs> I don't think he was called to get married. You know, I always got the sense that he was trying to drag his family into this deep devotion that he had for God. Not that it was a sin that he got married. But it was like he, he, there was something about him where he was called to a, a singular focus on Christ. You got to realize now in the Protestant world, all of the Protestant world, you need to be married. Okay? I don't care what they tell you. Oh, there's a place for singles here. Or we have single ministry. I mean, no, uh -uh. I know that world. I went to seminary in that world. You, you should be married in that world. And if you want to get a job as an ministry, you really should be married. And, and they'll question that they will and so that's you know genesis you know man man leaves his, his his father mother and he's you know united to his wife so that they they just go out of that and they don't really understand the idea of celibacy for the kingdom where jesus says you know people have committed themselves to the kingdom to the point of having that singular focus and so that's not for everybody it's for a small number of people really percentage wise but then I realized when I started reading all about this way, there's a whole category of these people, but they're all Catholic and Orthodox. And I had, I had read about them too when I was reading. Um, sorry, this is my alarm. Uh, I was reading about it, and I remember reading about it and thinking, you know, there's all these monks in the early church and religious orders, and people um, that are sacrificing themselves to the point of, of saying, you know, I'm going to focus here and now on the eternal reality where I won't be married to a single person like I would here if I was you know, in, a, in, a, in a marriage. And I think I saw that at the time reading it, but then once I realized that this category still existed in I don't know how I didn't see this in the in the Catholic world. I, I think I knew priests didn't marry, but I just never thought about it. Uh, and it just dawned on me, wow, okay, so maybe they have something there, you know. Uh, now I knew about the abuse 
issues in the church. I knew about the controversies and things like that. I'd heard about those things on the news, but I didn't I didn't think a lot about it. And I think it was just my sister was probably praying for me and maybe others that I don't know about. And I'm starting to think through these things. Another thing that happened one time we had this um, argument. Um, we it, it was a it was a class a philosophical a, a philosophy class, and in the class I remember the, the 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 theologian. He's well, he's a he's a philosopher, and he did a lot of our apologetics classes. So I'm, this is still the first seminary that I'm in, and um, the issue of birth control came up. So. And I remember my sister had planted some things in my head once again on that. And uh, uh, I remember that the Calvinist perspective on this, there are some people in kind of a, um, they come from a kind of Calvinistic way of thinking that, you know, it's a real robust focus on God's providence. You know, that in him we live and move and have our being. And that there are, they wouldn't say maybe secondary causes. They know God uses different things. In, in aspects of creation and everything like that, but he's always in control. He's always guiding. And then, you know, they would even quote uh, verses like, uh, I don't know where this is in the Old Testament, God opens and closes the womb. Things like that, you know, that that God would, would be responsible for that. So we need to be open to life. And there's some of them that uh, resist birth control, but I didn't know the history of that. I didn't know that all Christians agreed uh, on uh, the contraception was wrong up until 1930, and it was unanimous, and it was never questioned. Um, I didn't realize that. And uh, once I started reading some of this, looking into it, started thinking deeply about it, I started it started appealing to me for some reason. I couldn't really fully explain it. Now I understand everything about it, but at the time, wow, that that teaching hit me, and it was so funny because we had a classroom of people, and you had all these different folks, and some of them were adamantly against the idea, you know, that the contraception is the greatest thing, you know, we, we need it, and then um, the, the, the professor had admitted that he had a vasectomy after he had four kids, so, uh, and I was like kind of taking the, the alternative position, <laughs> and I think they all of a sudden were, I, I found myself defending this, I didn't even know what I was talking about either at, that, at this point, so they're looking at me like, what is your deal? You know, it's like, I don't know. I'm just thinking about this. Is, you know, this makes sense. You know, we need to let God um, be the author of the beginning of life just as the way he is the end. And maybe there's a natural way we're supposed to do this. I don't think I use that terminology. But again, it was just another step forward back into the fullness of the incarnation. I felt like, too, one of the things that dawned on me at some point is, you know, Jesus you know, as God, as, as we believe, he is the word, and the word became flesh, then it would make sense that God would, would use the physical aspects, everything about creation, so natural creation, culture, all the things that we create and do, he would use them as causes to bring forth his grace and his mercy, to reveal himself to us, to sanctify us and to set us apart. And when I started to understand Catholic sacramental theology and the way the Catholic Church sees creation as a means by which God lifts us up to himself, I realized that this, this philosophical standpoint, way of looking at reality and creation, that was correct. And I, the more I thought of that, I was like, wow, I need to be Catholic. I became at some point intellectually convinced 
that I need to be Catholic. And I wasn't particularly happy about it, just to tell you no, because I liked my church, and I, I didn't know anyone who was Catholic other than my sister, who, by the way, I forgot, she, so she converted and, and then got, you know, after she converted while I was in the seminary. So this is when she's feeding me all this, this stuff from Scott Hahn, who, by the way, went to a seminary just like mine, the, the first one I was at. It was a carbon copy. It was a northern version of it called Gordon Conwell. I was in Reformed Theological Seminary. And years later, I got to meet him after I became a priest. And he said, oh, yeah, I know all those guys in the seminary you went to. So, you know, God's providence is amazing. So that was kind of the theological version of what happened to me um, as far as... Um, why I got to a point where intellectually um, I felt like I needed to become Catholic, but I still didn't know I was going to be a priest. I didn't really know much about priests. I didn't have a problem with them, but they were, it was an odd kind of foreign thing to me because we were just never around priests. We didn't know them. We were Catholic, so we had no background, no roots. And my sister's world was odd to me and strange now that she was Catholic because she was she had all these Catholic friends in, in groups, but I was never around them. So I was just in the evangelical world. And for those of you that are converts or you spend time in those churches, it's a very different experience. I mean, it's a, they're very different worlds. Yeah, we have a lot of overlapping aspects, but very, very different. So, so that kind of gives you an intellectual foundation of my conversion. Now I want to give you a couple stories so a couple of uh, really interesting things that happened. Um, another thing that was big, by the way, just one more intellectual thing is unity and authority. So, um, you know, this is a big thing if you're in the Protestant context. I don't think people understand how divided they are. They're so divided that they have this idea called essential Christian doctrine. Okay, so what they've actually done to, 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 to pretend that they have some unity is they've reduced it to very, very big things that they have to agree on. So, in other words, Jesus is God. Okay, so they do agree on that. He did die on the cross, right? And there is one God and three persons, and we're supposed to have a relationship with him. <laughs> but that's generally kind of it. Okay, after that, everything is on the table. Moral stuff, sacramental stuff, worship, everything. So the idea that we believe in the church, that we have unity, not just in truth, but also liturgically and morally, you know, and in every sense in, in worship. And, and we, we, you know, you, you go to any Catholic church in the world and you see the same liturgy. Yeah, there are, there's diversity within the liturgy. You can have different responses, different ways of doing things. We have some different rites, but there's a real unity in worship. But there's also a real moral unity that we, we can say things like, what does the church teach? We can actually say that, and we can find out. Whereas in, in, in that context, as much as I love our Protestant brothers and sisters, well, what, they would never say that. They would say, well, you know, I believe this because the Bible says this. Well, I believe this because the Bible says this. Well, I believe this because I remember being in small groups that I would lead of men where we couldn't agree. And on significant things, too. Not like, you know, I like... Um, you know, I like um, this kind of music um, from the fish. You know, well, I, don't, I like the fish, but I like that kind of music. You know, you know, we're talking about big things like baptism, you know, issues of salvation and grace, things that if Christians can't agree on them, something went wrong at some point. Because if we're not united in that way, how can we be a light? 
to people in the world. So the issue that I was, I knew that there were fights and divisions in the Catholic Church. I knew all that. But it was amazing to me that you had one church bound to one catechism. And this catechism was much deeper, ten times deeper than any statement of faith on any website of any Protestant church that you go to or any denomination. Even the denominations that are together, they have all these loose ideas, very subjective. Well, we believe this, it might be this, it might be that, you know. Within the denomination, let alone the 50,000 of them that exist. So it blew me away that there was a catechism. And while we fight over things and we disagree, we know we have all kinds of people in the church that will say, well, I, I'm very selective about this, Father. You know, I, I don't really know about that, this, that, the other. You hear all that. The reality is, whether we realize it or not, you know, we are bound to that, and that that is the teaching of the church. That's a summary of the deposit of faith. And I just thought it was amazing that for 2,000 years, we had managed to keep it together. And it's really because we haven't managed to keep it together. The Holy Spirit has done that. So that was a miracle to me. And I realized that also the issue of authority, you know, what authority do I have to say this is true? Because that's a real big issue. We, especially if you're a pastor or you're an authority, you know, because people say, well, here's the Bible, Father. I, that's not what I see. I, I see this is what I, I, I read it as. So I'm going to do this, you know. Okay, well, what you do that a few times and then it becomes very relativistic, you know. How, how do we even stand on anything? We can't agree on anything. So so anyway, that, that was another intellectual conviction I had. Many people have had these, so I don't think that any of these are like uh, mind-blowing revelations to you, but it was just a, a very strong conviction. But then there were some stories, things that happened to me. So um, let me see how many I've got time to give you. Um, let's see. Okay. Three stories that we'll, we'll get. Uh, but these were like personal things that happened um, that really led to my conversion. So, uh, one of the things I used to do when I was in the, um, uh, the evangelical world and was going to perimeter church, I would, believe it or not, I did evangelism in a kind of, um, what some people would say was an extreme way. I was not like ugly or condescending. I wasn't preaching on the street at people down and telling them they were going to hell. But what I would do is go to the, the, a courthouse. It was actually in Gwinnett. And I would offer to pray with people who were waiting to, 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 to go to, into the, to a trial. I didn't know what the trial would be. It could have been a financial issue. It could have been something less serious. But there were criminal trials. And it was surprising how many people, by the way, who would, would take me up and I'd pray with them and talk to them about faith. And they usually weren't upset about it, you know. Um, and so it was it wasn't my thing. But I, I learned that, right? I didn't have the gift. But one, I did encounter a lady and her name is Patty Dorito. She, some of you might know her. She's a lady who now they've moved. Her and her husband, I believe, to I think she said Hilton Head, but she's a, she used to work with Holy Family Counseling. Because so I didn't know any of this, didn't know she was Catholic or anything. So started. I prayed with her, and I knew that she she seemed to know more and have a, a deeper conviction about her Catholic faith um, than other Catholics I had talked to. You know, they, they seem to be kind of indifferent. Well, I'm Catholic, but, you know, I go here or I do this. And um, she started talking about the Eucharist, and, and she mentioned confession. And for some reason, during that time, I had, um, I had wanted to go to confession for years. 
to not necessarily, I didn't know I wanted to go to a priest, but I wanted to confess my sin. So we had these small group of men and we'd all, I remember I'd had this exercise where we would all confess something. A lot of guys didn't want to do it. You know, it never really worked real well, but I had this desire to do this. And, and she mentioned confession. And then she mentioned she was Catholic. And I, this was after my sister had recently come in. And I go, oh, my sister became Catholic, converted to Catholicism. And I said, uh, her name is Amanda Haley. And she's like, oh, I know her. We've been praying for her. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> that made me really uncomfortable, you know, because I'm supposed to be the evangelist, you know. So I mentioned something about confession. She goes, well, I'll send you an examination of conscience, right? So I'm like, okay, well, what that means? So I, I said, fine, that's great. So we prayed. And it was just kind of an odd, uncomfortable thing. And so she sends me, she reaches out to me, she sends me this. And so um, I guess she continues to pray for me. I think she's part of, she was a part of Regnum Christi at, at one point. And I think this, that's how she got my sister's name and, and mine. And so when I did convert, this is, this, is, this is no joke. The first thing I went to was this, um, what was it? It was, because it was in August. So it was in, the, in the September. There was some just coming back. They were coming back to, uh, to church after taking the summer off. You know, why we do that. But um, and it was some sort of dinner they had. They had a tent outside in front of, and it's Mary Our Queen was where I went. And this was before the new one, the new church was built. And I look across and I see someone I recognize. I was like, I know that lady, you know. So I walk over and uh, sure enough, it's Patty Dorito, you know. Um, and she's like, you know, we were praying for you. And I told her the story about that, you know. Um, so it was, that was one interesting thing that happened. Um, you can see how God's always working. Now, the, this is the next one um, that I think is the coolest story. So around that the time I was going through a lot of this, before I graduated from the first seminary, uh, which was like in 2012 when I graduated, um, I went on an interview. You ever go on one of those interview weekends, you know, where you... You're, you go in the whole weekend and they're kind of grilling you to see is this the person for the job. So I got to know the pastor and, you know, the Protestant world, you have to find someone you have the same theology with and the same ideas. And so it's a, it's very divided. So anyway, I had found this guy. I liked him and, and he liked me and he had a church. But the only problem is church was in Long Island, New York. So I wasn't too thrilled about that. But. You know, it seemed like this was a good fit. So I went up there. He invited me up. He flew me up there. And the whole weekend, I was with clergy. And you have to understand, the Protestant world, you know, they don't really, a lot of the evangelical don't, don't have vestments. So you don't see the differentiation between clergy and laity. You know, it's just, everyone kind of blends in. But this weekend was a little different. I went over with the elders. They have a group of elders. They call them elders uh, that are kind of uh, a group of men. Uh, it was only men, and they had uh, they had all their suits on. They didn't have vestments on, uh, but the pastor was there, and the assistant pastors. That was the first night. The second night, I spent the night with the assistant pastor and his wife, and I stayed the whole time with the with the pastor and his family. Uh, and then the last night we were there, I went to this weird interfaith thing that. This pastor liked to go to, and the reason, like, he wanted to go because he wanted to convert these other Protestants. That's that's why I really went, you know. But he was a nice guy. He wasn't going to condemn them or anything. But he liked to debate them, you know. 
So there was all kinds of uh, Protestants at this thing, mostly Protestants. But there was actually a Buddhist guy, I think. There was a, a member of the Baha'i faith. That this is the different paths for different people. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. There was a, um, a, a, a Baptist guy, uh, African-American Baptist guy, uh, kind of, uh, uh, they were probably friends because they had the similar theology. And then you had um, uh, this kind of goofy, um, um, I don't mean to be mean, but he was kind of he was kind of goofy, liberal, uh, uh, white Anglican guy. You know, he was he was he didn't he didn't he didn't know how to take me. So anyway, he invited me to this, and he said, "You can come to this, but I'm going to warn you, it's kind of odd. You know, so it's good. You know, but but you can you can come to it." And so I went, and it was funny, you know, and I remember talking to the Anglican priest, and it was just a, it was an interesting experience. And there's all these different members, you could say, of, of, of clergy uh, that are dressed in their various garbs. Um, but there was one, one group that wasn't there. You know what the group that was. There was no, no Catholics, okay, no Catholics. And so I didn't really think of that, but I was thinking through some of this Catholic stuff at the time that I was going through, and... Uh, working through it. So the, the weekend came to an end and I, I felt like I did pretty well and he thought that I had a chance to get it. So he was going to go back and talk to the elders and see, do you want to hire this guy for the position? And uh, I got on the plane and I was on the plane and, and uh, I look up, I'm, I'm sitting on this side. So there's the aisle right here and I'm on this side of, of, of the plane. And there's like three seats over here, and then you have the aisle, and then three seats over there. So I, when I look up and I see this heavy set gentleman coming, walking down the aisle, and then you see uh, um, his wife behind him, and she sits down, and then he sits down next to me. It was right around the time that the Joe Paterno stuff came out. Remember with the Sandusky and everything? So 2011, something. I don't remember the exact year. So around that time. And I started talking to him, and, and he, I said, what are you, you know, where are you going? He's like, we're going to Athens, and, 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 and uh, I said, well, what do you do? You know, I was trying to be a good evangelist, you know, so I was going to bring up the gospel, you know. So I said, what do you do? And he's like, uh, I'm a Methodist minister. I was like, oh, well, that's interesting. You know, I just, I just hung out with a bunch of, um, you know, uh, clergy from different groups, you know, different Christian groups. So we talked a little bit about the paterno thing i think he was originally from that area and then as i kid you not i look up and who's coming down the aisle but a catholic priest okay so he comes down and he doesn't sit on that side he sits right next to me you know and hilarious is just like a good catholic that doesn't do evangelism total silence <laughs> he doesn't say a word he had no interest in talking to me he was opus day he's like I'm going on a retreat. I don't want to, you know. So he sits right next to me. And so I, you know, start talking to him. I couldn't resist. And then the first thing he brings up, I said, told him about my century. He's like, well, I didn't say anything about Scott Hahn. He brings up Scott Hahn. I said, you know who Scott Hahn is? And then he started arguing with me, not in an ugly way, but, you know, he just ripped right into, he gave me his card. And so that was something that was so sublime and odd that I had to reflect on it. And looking back, you know, um, I really believe that God uses the physical to reveal things. And there was something about me being on this side with this Catholic priest, even though I wasn't Catholic at that point in my life. And I, and you never see priests. Maybe, you know, maybe it's me. But before I was a, a Catholic priest, I'd never see priests out in public. 
You know, if you see Monsignor too, he doesn't have the collar on, so you don't know he's a priest. You know, so but you don't see uh, a lot of Catholic clergy. So it was just so odd to see him, and then he's sitting right next to me, and the whole conversation. You know, I never called that guy back, uh, but it was really instrumental. Um, but I had, I'm sure I have his card somewhere. But he was he was a good priest and a good Opus Day priest. And then um, let's see if there's one other thing. Um, I would have to say um, the Blessed Mother, and I'll end on this. Got a few times for a few minutes for some questions. Um, yeah, she played a huge role. One one of the things that I came to realize, and I actually kind of came. Does it work? Okay. Something else breaks out there. Um, so I came to. Uh, uh, I really was very. That, that was never a problem for me, the Blessed Mother, like it is for so many uh, Protestants and people that convert. Because really for several hundred years, you know, they really had seen her as something that she pops out <laughs> during Christmas. You know, that, that's it. I mean, she's during in the texts that, that deal with her, you know, in Jesus's infancy and childhood, she's she's spoken of. But other than that, she's pretty much ignored. I mean, they don't really talk about her. So it's so odd. It was, you know, for so many Protestants to see, well, why are they venerating? Why there's so many feast days? I can't seem to get this. Well, for me, it wasn't as hard. And um, looking back now, I think I know why. Um, so one of the things is my mom was always the, the Christian in the family. And not just in our nuclear family, but she was, uh, she was the, the deep, had the deepest Christian faith of any persons in an extended family. Everyone kind of knew that subtly. And her name is Mary, but I found out later her name isn't just Mary, but it's Mary Dolores, which is a Catholic devotion, Our Lady of Sorrows. So that's, that's literally my mom's name, Mary, Mary Dolores. So there was always a, a connection for me with the feminine leading me as a male to God. You know, so the idea of a spiritual mother made sense. My sister played that role on some level in my life. Uh, and I had women that I had known that had helped me to grow in my faith. Not as much with men. So, uh, you know, seeing Mary that way made a lot of sense. And there was a, a time in my life where I actually uh, was dating someone. and uh, Or I was, no, I wasn't dating someone yet. I prayed a strange prayer. Uh, and I think I had started on down my past, my path of conversion, my first conversion in, in the evangelical Protestant world. And I remember praying a prayer. And the prayer was, save me through a woman. I don't know why I prayed that prayer. I think part of it was my life was not in the best place. So I thought if I meet someone that is a, you know, a, a, a good Christian woman, I don't know what I was thinking. God will use that person in my life. Well, years later, he brought that prayer back to me. Now, this is 10 years before I was Catholic. And he said, do you remember when you prayed that years ago? He goes, well, I saved everybody through a woman. And I did it 2,000 years ago. You know, Because the word was made flesh in Mary. And all the graces that we receive come through Jesus, who was made flesh through her. So everyone is saved through a woman. 
And so and God has always used that in, in, in my life. And, and I've always had really amazing spiritual mothers. Uh, like, for example, when I went to a Catholic formation program, it was interesting. We had a spiritual mother day. So they all uh, they had these women locally that will adopt a priest and pray for them throughout the summer. It's a formation program in the seminary. Well, the day that we met the spiritual mother was July 11th. Well, that's my mother's birthday. Okay. So things like that, uh, you know, that would come up. My birthday is Lord's. So I was born on the Feast of Lord's. So there's all kinds of things like that. I don't have time to go into all of it. But um, I was also, I came into the church on Maximilian Kolbe's feast day. Maximilian Kolbe is one of the greatest Marian theologians. In fact, even the last moments of his life, he was asking the question, why did Mary say at Lourdes, not, I am immaculately conceived? She said, I am the immaculate conception. So a lot of these things are ongoing, you know, unfolding. But those are the things that I think happened to me that led me to, you know, to come into the church. And as far as the priesthood, um, you know, once I came in, all these questions, all these desires I had, to serve God. I didn't know what I wanted to do. That was part of the reason I went to the first seminary, but mo mostly to learn about God. But I wanted to do something other than what I was doing for a living. And uh, when I came in uh, to the Catholic Church and I started investigating the priesthood, I was like, wow, everything fits. So then, you know, I started discerning right after that. And, you know, a few years later, I'm in seminary. I graduated from another seminary. So, um, and that was at Notre Dame. And then I was ordained three years ago. So, a summary. So sorry, I went a little longer than I should have, but um, hope that was uh, a good summary of of what happened and how I became Catholic. And then, really, once I became Catholic, becoming a priest, it all fit into place right away. You know, it just made sense. So um, all the things I was passionate for uh, found their home in the priesthood. So questions. What would you say was the biggest difference between the Reformed Seminary versus the Catholic Seminary? That's a great question. You know, the Catholics, they're very, there was a lot of differences. The biggest difference, though, the Protestant Seminary is a, it's a, that you have to pay for your, your seminary education. So the people that are there have a kind of built-in accountability. <laughs> Am I going to be at the class? Am I going to be honest? Am I going to do this? Because I have to. I'm paying for this. I just paid thousands of dollars for my tuition. Uh, I have to, you know, and, I, and, and my church might be helping me, maybe. But you remember, they don't have the financial resources because they're not one. They're all split apart, and, they, and some of them are very small groups, so they don't, they can't put someone through these seminaries. So it was different. It was just a different mindset. Sometimes in the Catholic world, first of all, you don't work and you can't work. In the, in the Catholic seminary. Your whole focus is prayer and you're kind of isolated a little bit and, and it's supposed to be a monastic experience, but you're also studying and you live in that community. So you go out and do things, but it's very, very much a team mindset. You're all together, you're all, but you also have some interesting characters that end up in the seminary. You're like, why is this guy here? You know, you kind of, most of them are the greatest guys, but sometimes you question like, you know, the motives, but, but in the other seminary, it was like, this person's paying to go to the seminary. So they had to kind of be, you also have different ages, different stories. 
very different. We, we kind of were all just students doing our own thing. There wasn't a real unity. So I think that in the Catholic scenario, you're very united. You're all same purpose, same mind. And you all are subject to the same rules, too, whatever age you are, which is very interesting. So that, that gives you a little bit of a difference. What about apostolic succession on the unity that you told us and your experience as a priest? Yeah, no, that was big. I mean, I one of the things I realized was that um, when it comes to how important apostolic succession is, because, you know, authority for the Protestant world is sola scriptura. You know, uh, their authority is a book. You know, and even in the more progressive groups, they'll still focus on the book. The problem is they don't agree on how to interpret it. With us, we know that nobody could read early on. The church had not canonized the New Testament until probably, uh, I think, four, early 400s when, 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 when everything was, was finalized. So you, they could never have used Scripture as an authority like that. Um, they, they all knew there were certain special documents, and basically when they came together and had a council, they were able to agree on most of it, uh, and they finally canonized it, but they didn't just go to a, a Bible verse or a quote to try to decide what they believed. They had councils, you know, first starting with the Nicene, uh, the Council of Nicaea, and that's how they hammered out these doctrines and these truths. Uh, and so for me, the, the, the importance of apostolic succession was that how do I know who Jesus was, who he, who he was in the way he wants us to understand him, and me in relationship to myself, and the moral life, and how I'm supposed to worship. It can only be through Jesus giving it to the apostles and then to their successors and down through the ages. And that the first several hundred years, there was no other way to do it. There was The idea of people walking around with the Bible and just, you know, good luck with that. First of all, you couldn't you couldn't write the stuff down. It was too expensive. Only rich people could do it, and nobody could read. So how was that going to work? So apostolic succession. I don't know if that answers your question, but it's that's that was absolutely key. You know, um, so. So I think like a lot of people have an intellectual like conversion, right? A lot of what you're saying is like the intellectual, right? Kind of like yeah. reading and learning. But, you know, even from my own experience and other people, it's like eventually crisis gets to the heart, right? Because you can read your whole life and not right. Catholic because you have to live that out, right? Have that desire to be Catholic too. So, like, what prayer do you feel like really led you in? Or um, kind of like when for you was like the heart moment where Christ like converted your heart versus just like the intellectual side? I think that, you know, I think both initial conversion and the other one started intellectually. And then it became more existential and and and, and personal. And uh, once I came into the church, actually, because that's when I started to receive the Eucharist. That's when I went to confession. But also, that's when I got to really know the beauty of who the Blessed Mother was, and she really attracted me. Uh, and to the way we understand our Lord, you know, seeing the Lord, uh, His corpus on the crucifix, and. To see the vulnerability and the, the act of love that overcomes our sin. So it was, for me, it's always partly intellectual because that's the way it is. But those things started to move from head to heart once I started to worship as a Catholic. Uh, and, and that's ongoing. And in the, in the seminary was ongoing. I mean, right now, I think I've 
grown in my appreciation for sacred music. But I think, you know, you don't really see a lot of sacred music in the Protestant world, you know. Um, they'll have organs and hymns in some of their churches, but a lot of it's bands, you know. And I like the band, I like the four o'clock mass, but, you know, the, the sacred music was something that grew on me. And all those things, I think, were a part of a real personal uh, conversion. And then also, you know, something I didn't talk a lot about is suffering. Um, suffering is, I've never seen any experience with my own suffering a better explanation, but also existential kind of experience of my crosses and difficulties having be more infused with meaning through the Eucharist and through offering myself as now a priest and, and, and sacrifice through the Mass. That So there was an intellectual part of that, but there's actually an experience of that. That see that I have in, in my personal crosses and in meeting people in their suffering, there's such a deep experience. And in the Protestant world, they have a context for that on some level. You know, there's hope, you get through it, God will work for good, but it's much more superficial. The depth that I experienced as a priest and as a seminarian and as a young Catholic with regard to that, um, that really brought me even closer to the Lord as I came to know him in the fuller way as a Catholic. So that gives you that. Did you have any conversations with like people from your previous seminary or that were part of, that maybe had a, a poor reaction to your conversion and how did you handle that? Yeah, you know, it's a good question. I had a couple, I had some things come up. Um, you know, there were a few conversations uh, about things. Um, one one that I can think of, there was a guy, uh, he, he grew up Catholic. And he went to St. Anne's, as a matter of fact. Uh, nominal Catholic, didn't care, didn't practice his faith, didn't live his faith, just did whatever he wanted, as a matter of fact. Had a conversion at North Point. He was in a small group with me. Got into some really anti-Catholic guys. I think he still is anti-Catholic. Went to the same seminary I was at. We were friends. He's, he wouldn't condemn me so much, but I remember when I told him there was this long pause on the phone. <laughs> And I started immediately challenging him with certain things. He wasn't ugly about it, but he was resistant. And we didn't keep in touch for other reasons. It wasn't just that. But that was that was one. And so there was definitely some resistance and a shock, I think. Uh, I also had a discipleship leader who was the greatest guy. And we'd never argue with about anything. But he it was the first time we had an argument about something. Because he was, I was in a group when I was going through a lot of this. And I would float it off them. And they knew I knew more about both the Protestant world and the Catholic world because I'm in a Protestant seminary. So they, it really wasn't a fair fight, so to speak. But we didn't fight. It was just we'd have debates. And he, you know, he couldn't answer the questions. You know, he couldn't respond. But he was still resistant. I thought that was odd. But for the most part, nowadays, people are very respectful. But that doesn't mean they agree or understand. You know, and yeah, there were people that kind of were like, what are you doing? And my mom, I think, a little bit, she struggled. But for the most part, she was, mom's just glad that I'm a committed Christian, you know, because for years that was not the case. And she knew that and she was like, oh boy, you know, so, I, but then she, then she started to really appreciate things. But I think it's still strange to her because from the time she was a little girl, it's very hard when from the time of a little person that you're a little person and you don't experience any of that. You experience only your tradition and you love your tradition. See, I never felt that way. I was just like, I'm mm, in church. 
you know, this is, we go to church, get food after it. That's that's all it was. So, anything else? Yeah. Um, is there anything that after you became Catholic, you like started to really struggle with in the church, either your experience or understanding of something you didn't know before? That and how did you like approach that and continue to approach that? Because like not everything is perfect. Yeah. No, I, I knew what to expect like I it was funny at one point I didn't tell this story but I went to a silent retreat at the Ignatius house and there was a priest and there are priests over there and I was like they don't believe that I knew right away that's not what the Catholic Church taught he was he meant well he was saying some things that weren't correct you know and my sister had told me that and when I came in I think that was that's been the hardest thing is to it wasn't a surprise, though. It's just having to navigate that. Um, there's a lot of guys. Some of them are really good men, and they're older priests, and their formation was very different. And they have these odd or strange ideas about what the church teaches. And you you have to treat treat them with respect and reverence, but you know that that's not correct. And you know that now our formation is also better in a lot of those seminaries. And so there's, a, there's an age gap issue, but there's also the issue of, being respectful. So I think the hardest things has been just how do I have men that are kind of spiritual father figures, even though I wouldn't agree with them on a lot of things, but how do I treat them with respect and and be obedient to them many times because I might be under them in a parish and then all of a sudden have to deal with very difficult issues where I don't agree with something they're doing. And it's not something small. You know, it's not like you know, he likes to hold his hands like this when he says, let us pray, and I do, you know, it's, it's big stuff. It shouldn't be, but it's there, and there's a lot of that, you know, so I think that's been the tougher thing. Is a, it's funny, people say, Paul Porter, some of you probably know Father Paul Porter, he's up at uh, St. Peter's Chanel. He did, he preached on something one time recently, and he said, uh, he said, he started laughing, he's like, I bet you guys think the toughest thing we have is we have to do as priests is celibacy. And he started laughing. He goes, it ain't that. He said, let me tell you, it's obedience. And so that that's the tougher of the three. You know, chastity, poverty, and obedience, obedience. It's being respectful, being obedient, um, hearing leaders, particularly cardinals, bishops, high at the highest level say things, and you're like, what? You know, and then not be disciplined, not be corrected. So yeah, but I knew that was coming. But yeah, that's been the harder thing. And I, I have guys above me that have been ordained five, ten years, and they deal with it brilliantly. And so I try to model myself after that. But I like to um, say some direct things sometimes when I preach and things. So I almost want to go with these <laughs> men sometimes and challenge them. But that, that, that's not the way to handle it. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that kind of... Anything else? Hey, one more. Yeah. Um, just to kind of reverse that, what has been the, like one of the greatest joys of being Catholic or a priest? I know there's like probably many, but like if you could yeah, no, it's, it's hard to to you know just the it's just that we we just have this never ending gift of the liturgy and the liturgical season and daily mass and. The liturgy of the hours. I don't think we even know how the liturgy of the hours is really hope. The church's hope is that everybody would pray that prayer of the church. 
And that's, a, that's an extension, as I was reading today, of, of the liturgy, of the Eucharistic liturgy, along with the sacraments, all the grace of sacraments coming out of that. And really there's just this, uh, uh, this, I, this, this, this daily, lifelong commitment to worship God in the most authentic way and live that, and having access to mass and confession and going myself, having priest friends that I can go to confession and praying the hours every day uh, and, and being in the scriptures on a daily basis and, and systematically going through the scriptures. Not like you see some guy in a church that just decides he's going to go through Romans. And he just decided, you know, that, well, why are we doing a series in Romans? Because I decided we are. I'm the pastor, you know. But we're going through the entire lectionary. So every year we're going through the, at least the story of the scriptures, you know. Um, so that that's uh, that maybe a little bit of a broad answer, but just that we have all that. We don't always tap into it like we should, but it's there, and I feel like it's it's there for the taking, you know. And really, people kind of the, the liturgical is funny. I'll be like, I know I know all the feasts and the solemnities because I have to, partly because I have to go and say mass that day. I said, like, okay. And it's funny people will come and they'll be like, oh, I didn't know it was a solemnity today. <laughs> Because they're just going to daily mass. But the beauty of that to me is that all those aspects of the liturgical year is just one aspect of the mystery of our Lord. So it's it's entire life that we're going through every year. So people talk about, oh, Catholics, you know, and we, we, we just need to have a relationship with Jesus. And I'm like, yeah, that's what we have. We have an ongoing year-long relationship with every aspect of his life where we're united to that. If we want it, it's available to us in the Word of God, in the liturgy of the, uh, the, the liturgy of the Word made flesh on the altar. So I just love that. And you know, I, you can always count on it. Ordinary time, Lent, Advent, you know, Easter, Pentecost. So, I mean, all those things. So. Anything else? What was it that finally made you decide to become, like after you had converted to Catholicism, when did you finally decide to become a priest? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I was dating someone who was Catholic. That's a story I didn't get into. So another woman that led me to, you know, uh, kind of a spiritual figure in my life, and she was just a, a beautiful, devout Catholic. And so we were dating, and... Uh, you know, I started talking about my passions for the church now, and I'm thinking about coming Catholic, and she thought that was wonderful. And then she, we dated a while, and she goes, you know, I think we're going to have to take some time off. And I was like, why? And she's like, well, I think you need to discern the priesthood. <laughs> and I said, well, I was thinking about that, but I, I was thinking, you know, we were dating. <laughs> you know, and she said, well, you know, that there's a lot of things that, you seem to have a passion for it and an interest for it. You remind me of some of the guys I had dated. She had dated other men that had become priests or went into sin. <laughs> so, so that, or she knew guys like that that she maybe she went out on dates with. So, well, we didn't date that long, but it was kind of it was a little bit funny. But then, yeah, you know, that that was another little push. And I think it was around that time that I became Catholic. And then after that, because of her. Nudging, I checked out some things like discernment retreats and seminary. And when I met seminarians and I met their, saw their mindset and the way they looked at reality and the world, 
it all made sense. There were all things kind of coming together that were like, okay, I, I need to take a look at this. And then, but I had to wait for a couple of years because I had was a new Catholic and they make you do that. And, and it ended up being a very, I didn't like it, but it was a good experience. So, anything else? All right. Well, thank you.